welcome again to another episode of Coffee and Issues. My name is Carol Bernard, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Michael Ledoux, partner from with RSM Federal and the Federal Access Program. And today we have a special guest with us, Mr. Stephen Coprince, who's a, a recently retired GovCon expert. Hey, Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thank you, Carol. And no, no, not retired yet. I'm still practicing through uh, Thanksgiving, but it, it's pending. So okay. Uh, so if you're listening to this yeah. show after Thanksgiving, yeah. then my words will be relevant. That, that's right. That's right. But yeah, I'm I'm still uh, still active at the moment. All right. Cool. Thanks for the clarification. So, so the issue today that we're going to be talking about is COVID nineteen vaccines, mandates, protocols, etc. I wanted to bring Stephen on because Stephen does always such a good job in like really breaking down some of what is in uh, those legal terms and formats into into layman's terms. Uh, Stephen, before we begin, I think probably it would be good to go ahead and put out the legal disclaimer there, right? Yeah, I mean, a, a few a few disclaimers to put out just for, for folks, unfortunately. <laughs> Number one, yeah, this is this is a discussion uh, it is educational only. It is in no way, shape, or form legal advice for anybody who is listening. Um, and um, I will also point out that this is a rapidly evolving topic, as you know. We've got this executive order. We've got this guidance from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. I have no special information beyond that. I, you know, I don't have secret information. So if the answer is not in one of those documents, I may, as we're discussing, give folks my best guess uh, just based on my experience, but I'm going to try to preface it. And even if I don't, it's going to be an educated guess because uh, I don't have any secret or special information beyond those two documents, the executive order itself and that draft uh, guidance. And then finally, I would point out that I am not an employment lawyer in any way, shape or form. And so that, you know, I, t- I talked with contractors about some employment issues like service contract act, Davis bacon act, but one of the key issues that's going to come up for a lot of contractors with this executive order and this guidance is, well, which of my employees entitled to medical or religious exemptions? And that is not a question I can answer. And in fact, as we'll, I'm sure, discuss, I would recommend that contractors speak with a local employment attorney because the answer may vary depending on where the contractor does business and what laws state and local as well as federal apply. So that's a that's a, a mouthful, and I don't mean to take it up with disclaimers, but I do do want folks to know what they're what they're listening to and and what they're not listening to and what they're not listening to is me giving definitive legal guidance about any of the things we're about to talk about awesome hey thanks for making that clarification there Stephen. and and for for you guys out there that are listening to this uh podcast or watching this show we will be providing some further updates on this as well uh one place that you can go and get the updates is our govology blog if you go to govology.com uh if you go under the resources at the top uh and you see the blog there as in the drop downs you can click on that blog Stephen wrote a really great article for us uh on this initial like outlay uh, of some of this stuff. What we also can do, Stephen, is we're, we're going to uh, go in there and probably at the end of that blog posting, uh, since you mentioned the executive order, and there's some also some of the guidance that was uh, outlined by the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force or something like that. Yeah, I don't know the exact the name. name. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Safer Federal Workforce Task Force. We'll just call the task force. Okay. So I remember the full name. Yeah. So we'll get those posted on there. And, and again, uh, Govology Nation, www.govology.com forward slash nation will be also posting some updates there uh, so that 
you guys can take away some initial insights from this episode. And then basically you're going to have to keep yourself updated as well. One second. So Stephen, one of the things that I wanted to start out with is that we did have uh, somebody that submitted an issue uh, to the issues list. And I wanted to go ahead and start there with reading this out. Can you hear me? Okay. Yep. Here you just okay, fine. Great. So uh, here is uh, the issue in one sentence uh, that they've expressed. So we have unvaccinated employees supporting government contracts. Some are teleworking who do not want to be vaccinated. Okay. Then I asked, you know, uh, can you, give expanding details on this. So some of our government customers have directly asked our employees to self-report their vaccination status and stated that they will be subjected to weekly testing if they are unvaccinated. I do not know which employees responded or how they responded. Then I ask, uh, what have you, what steps have you taken to resolve this issue? Uh, and what was the result of those actions? I have not participated in the collection or distribution of my employees' personal health information because I believe it is illegal and unconstitutional. And then, then this says, what is your question? And, and the question at the end here says, you know, mandates per the executive order, FAR legislation, question mark, all employees, those on contracts or those on fed property, question mark, uh, legal consequences for noncompliance, question mark, state legislation pending which holds employers liable for mandated vaccine adverse effects will the government indemnify us so i know that's a lot just in one thing so where do you want to begin <laughs> and i'm not even going to be able to remember all that i'm afraid so we're gonna to have to we're gonna probably have to take that piecemeal because you yeah. know, i'm i'm getting getting up there in old and gray and then uh you know can only keep so much in my my brain at once but let, let's start with kind of this initial uh, notion of, hey, the, the government is going out there and asking for your employees to be, I guess, vaccinated right now. Well, if that if that's the case, then that is not um, that is not something that is stemming from the executive order and the draft guidance issued from the task force. The executive order, uh, despite common misconception about this, the executive order and the task force guidance do not require anybody to be vaccinated right now. Now, I can't speak as to whether a specific agency might put in a, in a certain contract a, a requirement that's outside that or goes beyond that. That's not something I've seen or can can evaluate. But what I can tell you is that the the executive order and the draft contractor guidance document that uh, is incorporated essentially that's come out from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force, the task force um, requires uh, covered employees to be vaccinated by December 8th. And so if you've got an, a federal agency that is uh, telling your employees they need to be vaccinated right now, maybe they have some authority for that, uh, but it's not coming from the executive order or the, the guidance, at least not in my my reading of that. So I, I would probably follow up the customer if I was that person and say, where are you getting the authority? You know, where in my contract does it say I have to do this? That that's that's the first thing. The second thing that concerns me a little bit about what I heard there is the notion of the agency directly reaching out to what I assume are contractor employees and asking them about proof of vaccination, kind of cutting out the contractor in that 
in that loop, as I understand it, based on the question. And so, again, that to me and my read is is not consistent with the guidance from the task force. The guidance from the task force is very clear that it's the contractor that is responsible for determining the vaccination status of its employees and gathering proof of vaccination. And the order goes through what you need to do. You have to have vaccine cards or the equivalent, essentially some sort of formal proof, uh, uh, you know, affidavit or something is not good enough. But that's that's on the contractor to gather that. And to the extent the government wants to audit it, presume, presumably it would come back to the contractor and say, hey, contractor, we're auditing you. Let's see the vaccination proof for your uh, employees at that point in time. And so the notion of the government going directly to the employees, to me, at least my read on it, doesn't seem to have any basis in the guidance uh, that's been published for this executive order. And I'd want to talk to my customer again about, well, where are you getting the authority to circumvent me, who you're supposed to be dealing with the contractor, and go directly to my employees? And sometimes when the government goes around the contractor, that can be inappropriate, and it can lead to what's called in some cases, a personal services contract where the government is treating contractor employees like they're employed by the government. Um, and that's not in most cases allowed because if the government wants to hire people, they're supposed to go through the civil service processes and all, all that sort of stuff. So I, I would want to have that conversation with my customer and say, hey, I'm, I'm looking at the executive order. I'm looking at the guidance. I don't see, number one, where you're uh, getting the notion that I need to have vaccinated employees right now. So can you please point me to the authority that applies to me that says that. And number two, I'm not understanding the basis by which you are circumventing me, your contractor, and going directly to my employees for this information. Can you please provide that? And that's what that, those are the places I'd probably start if I were that, that questioner and trying to figure out where this specific agency is going, because it seems to me it's uh, inconsistent, at least with the executive order and the guidance in the respects I mentioned. Yeah. Well, that's that's great uh, guidance, Stephen, and thank you. And I know we kind of just jumped right in there. So, uh, and that was the question and the issue that was at hand and that was submitted to us. But kind of let's take a step back just for a second. And first off, let's do like one thing pretty simple. Like who is impacted by this? You know, when you say federal contractors and, you know, their employees uh, and the question becomes, uh, it does, is that applicable to subcontractors? Do we have to flow down clauses to subcontractors? Do we have to monitor those subcontractors or do we just take some kind of you know, word for it? And then also, is this also applicable to federal grant holders? Yeah, good, good questions. And so um, let, let's start with the, uh, the prime contractor uh, question. And so you know, the question is which, which prime contractors are covered uh, most prime contractors are going to be covered. The, the uh, executive order uh, does not apply to uh, prime contracts below the simplified acquisition threshold. That's $250,000. Does not apply to grants. And so that's, you know, but grant is not a contract. Of course, it's a different type of vehicle. Uh, are certain types of contracts with Indian tribes to which it doesn't apply either. But other than that, it, it it's broadly applicable. So if you've got yourself a contract or as the executive order and the uh, guidance uh, define it, you can look at this, a contract-like instrument, which would include things like uh, BPAs, cooperative agreements, 
um, task orders, you know, other things like that, uh, concession contracts, which are, of course, the government's not paying you to do anything on, the, on those types of contracts, but they're still contract-like agreements. And so all those sorts of things are covered, and the executive order tended to be broadly applicable. It applies to construction contracts, it applies to services contracts, uh, and it applies absolutely to small businesses. That's one thing that I've had some uh, folks reach out and say, you tell me there's a small business exception for this and the guidance, unfortunately, that leaves no room for doubt. It says, you know, Q, does this apply to small businesses? A, yes, it does. And so there's no small business exception for that. Subcontracts, yes, uh, it applies to most subcontractors too. If your subcontract is above that simplified acquisition threshold, uh, there is an exception if the subcontract is solely for the provision of products. If a subcontract is solely for products, that means you're not doing a mixed contract where you're buying both product and service, for example, you're buying only material, only products, then you don't have to include that in a subcontract. But otherwise, if it's a subcontract above that simplified acquisition threshold and it's not solely for products, then the prime contractor does have to incorporate that clause in a subcontract after, and this is important because we haven't talked about this yet, after the prime contractor is subject to it. Because again, remember the primes aren't subject to this yet. We're gonna get into that. But once the prime contractor's contract becomes subject to the clause, then the prime is gonna need to flow that down to its subcontractors and ensure that the uh, clause specifies as it's flowed down that the sub has to flow it down to any lower tier subs too, because it applies all the way down the chain, uh, except for subcontracts for products. And as the prime, you've got to be really careful to uh, read the specifics of your uh, clause as it's included in your contract when it comes, because although the executive order how the exemption for contracts solely for products, subcontracts solely for products, they don't require it. In fact, they encourage uh, agencies to consider using this clause for subcontracts or products too. And so they say, hey, agencies, if you want to, you can do this. So that's a discretionary call now at the agency part, whether that would have to be included in a subcontract for products. So you will need to read the specific clause that's in your prime contract, which is coming. And we'll talk about those dates, I'm sure. And then you can decide this, the scope as a prime as to what you need to flow down to your subs. There is nothing to answer, I think, your final question on this at least the, my little brain can recall, uh, that requires at this point the prime to do more than flow down. In other words, it requires the prime to then go in and audit the sub or gather you know, the, the proofs from the sub of vaccination or anything like that. that. That, like most of this, I assume, is subject to being to involvement. You know, this is part of the, the guidance that's uh, out there right now from the task force. And maybe by the time the clause comes out, there will be that sort of uh, provision in there, and we got to wait for the clause to see, but I don't see anything in the current guidance or current executive order that would require the prime to take on a greater oversight role uh, other than ensuring that the appropriate clause is included in its its subcontracts. Wow, a lot, lot of stuff there to take in, uh, and you we, we spoke about uh, a little bit, you mentioned a little bit about timeline. We haven't talked about it yet, that could also be confusing because there was a recently published article on the Federal News Network. In fact, I shared it, I reshared it through uh, my LinkedIn post uh, not too uh, long ago, uh, just a couple of days ago, uh, which talked about this December 8th timeline for compliance. But after you wrote the blog for us, the blog posting for us, I realized inside of that uh, what you had written up 
Um, there are some more important dates that are coming in October that also people need to know about in November. So can you talk a little bit about those important dates people should kind of know and expect what they're going to be seeing here in October and November and December? Yeah, it's, it's really, I think, important to kind of, we hear all these dates coming out on December 8th is kind of the one that has stuck in people's minds. It's an important date. Uh, but December 8th is the day by which if you have a contract that includes this requirement or subcontract that includes this requirement, that's the date uh, by which your employees are going to have to be fully vaccinated. And so well, let's back up from that and talk about you know, when is this stuff going to apply, and we'll get back to that December 8th date in a second. So right now, at least under the executive order, we're talking on uh, you know, September 29th here right now. This is rapidly evolving. But as of September 29th, this doesn't apply to anybody. This doesn't apply to anybody yet. What the uh, executive order and guidance specify is that by October 8th, the FAR Council, that's the body comprised of representatives from DOD, GSA, and NASA that writes regulations known to all of us as the FAR, Federal Acquisition Regulation. But that body is supposed to publish a provision that will be inserted in solicitations and contracts. And it's that provision, once it's inserted, that will require compliance. And so right now, just because this executive order came out, there's no burden on anybody uh, because of it, but it's coming. So the FAR Council is going to come out with that FAR provision by October 8th. Once that FAR provision is included in one of your prime contracts, that's when your obligations are going to start. When will that be included? Well, the, the executive order and guidance say that new solicitations that are issued on or after October 15th are going to include that clause. So when you bid on a solicitation that's issued on or after October 15th, you know that clause is going to be included. New contracts that are awarded after November 14th. Again, assuming now that maybe the solicitation didn't include the clause, but the contracts awarded after November 14th, you're going to be bound by that anyway. By accepting that, that contract, essentially, you are now going to be bound by this, this new clause. So new solicitations after October 15th, new contracts awarded after November 15th. Uh, for folks who are currently incumbent contractors or working on contracts right now, this is uh, going to be added at the option or extension period if that happens to your contract. And so any options or other extensions that are issued after October 15th are supposed to come with this uh, new clause attached to. It's once that clause is incorporated in your contract that, boom, you've got now legal obligations and you know, a lot of folks are going to be able to look at, at where things are heading. And even though they don't aren't bound by it now, unless maybe there's some other authority like the questioner who, who maybe their agency had some other authority on this. But under the executive order and guidance, they're not bound right now. But, you know, it's coming. If you've got an option due, you know, that's due November 1st, for example, the agency's notified you that they're planning to exercise that option. Then, you know, that on November 1st, you're going to be bound by this. This requirement, and so now, now is the time to start planning to say, "Hey, we we've submitted uh, bids that we think might get awarded after November 14th. We're working on contracts that we know or hope are going to be extended after October 15th. Uh, the, this is the time now to start start preparing. If you have that obligation kick in on November 1st, now you've only got um, you know less than six weeks, I guess, to get up to full." vaccination on your employees. So you have to start working back on that. December 8th, again, is the requirement for all employees. Hey, y'all on your way over. Garfield will be oh. here at four. 
Again, we've got some sort of... One second. <laughs> no, no problem. Yeah. Whoever is not, not muted, if you guys can mute. Uh, one second. I thought that I had it set for everybody on mute when they no came worries. in. But I think... You can, yeah, you I don't hear ahead, anything else there. Yeah, and I'll just say December 8th, then, is the deadline for if you are bound by the clause. December 8th is the general deadline by which general, because there's a agency can grant a, a waiver of up to 60 days in certain cases, but it is the deadline uh, other than that for your employees to be fully vaccinated. Let's, let's assume now that you become subject to that clause at some point in, the, in you know, October, November. You have till December 8th to get all your covered employees, and we will talk about that, I'm sure, too, to get all your covered employees fully vaccinated. Uh, and so fully vaccinated is defined in the guidance and it's based i guess on on cdc uh fda type uh authority fully vaccinated is defined as two weeks after receiving your second dose of a two dose series that'd be moderna and pfizer those are two dose series or two weeks after receiving your single dose of the johnson and johnson and so if you walk back from that you say i have to have my employees fully vaccinated not not getting their first shot by december 8th but fully vaccinated by then it really three weeks before december 8th is going to be the uh you know your or two weeks before that i guess is going to be the the early the latest that they could be getting that jab if it's johnson and johnson they could get jabbed you know two weeks before and you'd be fully vaccinated by the eighth but that's that's taking you back into November already. And so you've got to be planning already how you're going to get not just your people to get get their shots, if that's what they're going to do, but get them with enough time so they have two or maybe more weeks or more uh, before uh, December 8th, if they're more time, if they're going with that two dose regimen, which requires, of course, uh, some time off in between your doses. I want to go to Michael. Uh, um Michael, do you have any comments that you want to throw in there or questions for Stephen? And I know we've got a pretty active Q&A that's going to probably happen after the show here. So what are your thoughts, Michael? Yeah, I, I think we do have a, a lot of comments coming in. I, I think a lot of people are um, about as clear as they can get on the people that need to get vaccinated. I think this has all been helpful to clarify that. I think where the, the challenge comes for a lot of contractors is regardless of the politics, and I, and I always want to remove that from this, you know, let's put the politics aside. There's people on the team that are not going to get vaccinated or for whatever reason. And so the challenge for a lot of these companies is how do I deal with that? How, you know, what's the process for dealing with that? And and I know I've reviewed these quite a bit. So it's not necessarily a question. Maybe, Steve, you can chime in. There's, there's so little guidance on the exceptions to the vaccine. Um, and so we've got the, the disabilities clause. We've got the religious exemption clause uh, that's out there. But I've actually seen people file a religious exemption. There's, there's paperwork that their organization has. And it get denied where an organization says, well, this isn't sufficient. <laughs> like, well, how are you to tell me what my religious exemption is? How is it? It's not sufficient. And so, like, I think that's where a lot of the gray area comes for folks right now. Of We're being told there are exceptions, but then organizations are saying, well, I know there's an exception, but we're not going to allow that exception because 
we don't think your write-up is sufficient or we uh we just we just no we're just not going to allow that so that would be a question that i think a lot of people have is how do these companies deal with the exceptions and you know do you do you have any thoughts on that yeah, a little bit, but at this one, I'm going to have to mostly punt because a lot of this really yeah. is employment law stuff. And employment law is a hodgepodge of federal, state, and local. And so the way yeah. that the guidance reads and the task order reads is essentially you, and I think one of the reasons why folks are maybe somehow finding this a little more narrow than they may have anticipated uh, is that the guidance reads that you can give an accommodation to an employee when required by law, when required by law. And so the way I read that is that if you want to offer an accommodation to an employee, you, you're probably, again, this is just my read on it, not being an employee lawyer, but read on the, on the executive and the guidance, you're going to have to tie that to a law that says my federal, state, or local law that's applied to me as, as applied to this particular per employee requires me to give them an exemption because uh, disability slash medical reason or religious. And so what I suggest for folks, because again, Michael, I'm, I'm with you. I take the politics out of this. I'm just here to, you know, uh, talk about this as a thing that exists, right? And it's, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's a mandate for contractors and they've got a tough battle potentially ahead of them because some percentage of most contractors' employees are not going to want to do this. And in fact, those who did want to get vaccinated probably already have. Yeah. And so they've, they've got, they, they're trying to deal with the people who have decided for whatever reason, again, I'm not judging one way or the other, but for whatever reason, those folks have decided, I don't want to do this. And now the employer has to come in and, and, and try to make a call as to what to do with that. And so I would advise them to seek out a, an employment lawyer who is well-versed in the laws that apply to them, that apply to the, the places where their employees work and right. reside and talk about it and say, hey, I've got these employees, what, you know, federal, state, and local, what, what requirements do I have to accommodate uh, medical disability reasons or uh, religious reasons? And, you know, when do I know uh, under local law, or when can I support with the with maybe a, a memo from an attorney that I've properly categorized someone uh, as exempt, and that that's really the best I can do. Because again, I I'm not an employment lawyer by trade, nor would I, you know, mm -hmm. again, you, I give even if I was a guidance to people in every jurisdiction in the country, because someone's state law may require one thing where someone else's state law may not, and so I, I think, but I think that's a conversation that contractors should be having. ASAP so that they know as and get opinion from a, an employment lawyer as to what accommodations am I required to offer and how can I apply that to my employees so that they now know um, and can either justify giving the accommodation or in some cases may have to tell an employee, sorry, but we've, we've spoken with legal counsel and while we'd love to accommodate your request to go unvaccinated, we don't, you know, our opinion from our counsel is that we can't do that, that we don't have a, right. a solid legal basis to do that. So that, that would be my suggestion. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point. And for, for some people, I know, like I've actually had to deal with this for my wife runs a nonprofit. We've had to deal with it a few times. And it's, when you look at those clauses, exceptions, accommodations, whatever it is you want to call them, right? When you look at those, part of the language talks about as long as it doesn't put an undue burden on that organization. 
And so like that could be one of the reasons it's getting declined where somebody says, Hey, you know, Steve, you know, you are the supervisor of whatever you're on site. You deal with 500 employees every single day. And in order for you to go unvaccinated, it would create an undue burden on your team or what, like there, there's a way for them to say, sorry, that's not gonna, gonna fly here because of the position you're in. And I think that, I think that's rarer than the situation where I know a bunch of people have typed in questions today about, well, all of my people are telework. You know, they're all working from home in their pajamas. You know, what do they have to get vaccinated? And I think in a lot of those situations, it really boils down to communication with the contracting officer and what the situation is. I mean, if, if your employee is not stepping foot in anything but a Walmart in their home, like there's there's got to be some common sense. But again, I don't think there's been an, enough language. So I've been waiting and maybe you guys have seen it come out. I've been waiting for the Department of Labor to put out some more information because I know in the executive order, it talked about the you know, Department of Labor putting something out. I haven't seen that language. I don't know if that'll come in around October 14th or, or so, but uh, I believe that language will hopefully clear up some more of this for us because you know, uh, at a high level, we're seeing if you're working on uh, uh, in a federal building, you got to get it. And then on one side, we're seeing, well, if you're a company that has a hundred or more employees, and then on another level, you're hearing, well, if you've got a contract that was awarded after, you know, November 14th. So you're like, which one of these things apply to this? And in, in a way they all do. Um, and yet I've, I've actually heard people in early September get letters from places they were working that says, hey, by September 10th or whatever it was, all employees must be vaccinated or be following the testing protocols and stuff like that. And, and that's that's where I've had to, to try and calm down a lot of our clients because they were like, hey, we've got to get these people vaccinated. And I've said, I'm reading the letter you're reading. It says vaccinated or follow this protocol here. And the protocol is get them tested. I mean, you know, that that's just that's just what it is. Even in the executive order, it's it's you see the same language in there, vaccinated or get tested. So um, I think there's there's more here than than we we may be really taking into consideration. And again, trying to take the politics out of it and just look at the thing that it is. So, yeah, not, you know, I think that's that's important. No, there's this is kind of the latest shot and kind of an evolving, uh, you know, uh, growth of rules and there certainly were earlier rules especially with related to uh folks who are doing work in federal facilities and so you know with regard to vaccination or testing i do want to be clear though that with this current executive order the 14042 executive order and the safer task force guidance there is no exemption for getting tested what the executive order says is thou shalt comply with the task force guidance and what the task force guidance says is thou shalt get vaccinated unless you get an accommodation for disability religious reasons and so this this goes beyond what previous policy had because it was previous policy for folks working in federal buildings that said said just that said you know vaccination or you know testing once a week or twice a week or whatever the case was this goes beyond i think this is a response again trying to take the politics out of it but understanding where the administration was coming from was saying, well, we tried that and, you know, Delta is still running rampant. So now we're going to do this, whether that's, you know, mm. something you agree with or disagree with is a political question, not for, not for us to answer, but I don't want anyone to take away from this that if I get 
that clause in November or October, I can test instead of getting folks vaccinated because that's not that's not the case. Uh, with respect to the teleworking question, I you know I, I agree we need more answers on that, but I think that the guidance gives us an initial framework as and it's it's pretty tough. I think what the what the guidance says, my read of it again is that uh, you know an employee is required to meet that vaccination standard. Again, this is all assuming that you're under a contract that has the clause in it, but assuming that you are, then who is a quote unquote covered employee? And the answer as I read it is that a covered employee is someone who is working on or in connection with a covered contract, which is a contract that includes that clause and working either directly, direct billing that contract essentially, or in connection with, and they have specifically said, look, if they're doing accounting functions that are essential to that contract, they're working in connection with that contract. And so and so if you're working on or in connection with the contract, as I read it, it doesn't matter where you work, the va- even if you work from home, the vaccination rule applies. Um, if you are working at a covered contractor workplace, which is a facility controlled by the contractor, then you must comply with the rule, even if you are not working on or in connection with the contract. And so if you're working at headquarters, but you're doing only uh, commercial contracts, uh, you still, as I read it, have to be vaccinated under this rule. The one exception that, as again, this is as I read it, and I would like some more uh, input on this too, is for folks who, don't, who fail both those tests. They are not working on or in connection with a covered contract, and they're not working at a facility controlled by the contractor. And the, the guidance does say that an employee's home is not a facility controlled by the contractor. So if you've got an employee who is both teleworking and they're not working in connection with your government contracts, my read is at least under the current guidance that it seems to me they would not be covered by the vaccine requirements. But if they are either working on or in connection with a covered contract or working at a facility controlled by the contractor, again, as I read it, the vaccine requirement would apply. And that's, that's pretty tough medicine. And I know the telework question is coming up over and over and without, you know, with good reason, because that's the world we're living in right now. Right. Uh, and that, that's how I read it. And I can certainly see the policy. So who cares if they're working a covered contract, if they're sitting in a home office? The one, the one thing that it does say about, and we haven't talked about this, that the executive order and the guidance, in addition to vaccine requirements also say you must comply with the CDC's masking requirements in certain areas and social distancing and all that. And so the, the guidance does say, if, yeah, if you're working from home, don't worry about that. You don't have to wear a mask in your own home office. Um, but they, unless you're on zoom, <laughs> unless you're on zoom and, and you've got special zoom that can, can transmit viruses. But, but other than that, the vaccine requirement would still apply again, as I read it, uh, based on um, the fact that you're working on or in connection contract. That's very interesting. So it's changing as we go along. And, you know, as I was sitting here listening, uh, I'm thinking to myself, boy, Stephen, we may actually need to bring you in like <laughs> once a month or so on Coffee and Issues just to kind of get updates as everything moves forward. And, and uh, I'm guessing guidance might change. But uh, what I'm taking away from it, and I know we've had some folks that came in late, and but just kind of in my summation of what I'm taking away from this is that, you know, there's going to be some new clauses coming in to contracts uh, starting in solicitations in October um, and October 15th. Did you say that date was? Yeah. New solicitations, uh, October 15th and then contract awards November. So, and, and later or extensions 
options, extensions, et cetera. Yeah. So, so read those solicitations carefully, I think is the guidance here. Once we start, especially getting into October 15th, because this is where you might see those clauses start to pop up that you've got to comply with and whatever the language of the law is inside of those clauses. And again, if it says thou shalt, will, or must, you know, you either, if you want the contract, then you, you kind of have to basically comply with that, right? Yeah, that's or right. Not bid you know, on it. <laughs> and one thing that's uh, interesting to me is the solicitation thing. Fair enough. You know, if you don't want to get your folks vaccinated, don't bid on con on solicitations that are issued after October 15th. But how about solicitations that you bid on before any of this came up that are now being awarded? They're inserting this anyway. Mm. In many in many cases, you don't have the yeah. right to just say no. Now, some contracting officers will say will let you out if you say, you know, we can't support this contract. Okay, they don't want to deal with you anyway. But oftentimes, depending on how the solicitation was set up you essentially have made an offer to the government. They accept it. Boom, you got a contract there. And so they'll say, yeah. you have to take this contract, but we're putting something in that you didn't know about. And then maybe the worst of all for contractors who may be saying, you know what, I don't want to have to deal with a contract that includes this stuff because I would might lose some of my key employees or be forced to terminate them or whatever. Options, you know, if the government ordinarily, if they give you notification of an option, usually within 60 days or so, you have to accept that option. You don't have the right to just turn down an option uh, under the standard fire clauses. And so they say, yeah, we're exercising your option. It's unilateral. And by the way, uh, because we're doing that, now you have this requirement that you didn't have when you bid the contract. That's that's tough medicine for folks who may want to say, I, you know, I'd rather decline a contract than have to go yeah. through this stuff. So that, yes. that's going to be some fights over that, I think. Steve, I got a question for you here. If I remember right, and you know, I've been reading a lot of this stuff, so it kind of turns into mush after some point. You you all you get all this legal stuff, and uh, it's all one big document. But if I remember correctly, in the executive order, the hundred person limit on the companies that was not specific to government contractors. That was across the board, though, right? So even if you're not in government contracting and you have 100 or more employees, once the final rule comes out from Department of Labor, this applies to you whether you are a government contractor or not. Yeah, and I think we may be talking about different executive orders because there's, there's the, uh, the one that's the, the 14042, uh, the, that's the uh, September mm -hmm. 9th executive order. That that was not, the 100 employee or was not, as I recall, part of that. Yeah. Yeah, there were there were two executive orders yep. that came out on that day, and and there was one that was more of like, hey, here's what we're gonna do, and then the other one was, here's how we're gonna do it. But then it also left room for Department of Labor to issue the final rules to it, and and of the application, if you will. And so in that one, because that was the buzz, is a. President Biden gives a speech, yeah. says anybody with 100 or more employees, you're going to have to follow this. And to, to my knowledge, when I was looking at that one, that was not specific to government contractors. That was just all companies if you have 100 or more employees. So it was yeah. a much broader yeah. um, piece of that. So we've, we've got how it's affecting government contractors. Then we've got how it's affecting people, even if you're not a government contractor, um, and so I think those are those are two things. And I, and I know a lot of people on here are small businesses, so that piece doesn't affect them. Um, here's the one of the challenges, and, and you may have some thoughts on this, is if I'm on a contract that's up for renewal 
And now they're going back and saying, hey, this this now applies because I've seen that happen where I've, I've seen documentation come down and say, hey, you're required to do this by a certain date on this contract that you were awarded in 2019. And we're in, you know, the third year of it or whatever it is. Um, people didn't price those contracts with this in mind. And now there's new incurred costs that the government is saying, hey, you've got to go and do this, whether it is, you know, paying for that person to be out for six days or, or, or whatever it is. And I think that's definitely a question a lot of people have been asking us is, how are we going to recoup the cost that we didn't factor into the contract. We would have we would have priced it differently. We would have structured it differently. Um, but now we're at a point where we're in a contract. We can't get out of it, and we've we've got these costs. So I don't, I don't know if you got any yeah. thoughts on that. And that was also the last part of that question that the person who submitted uh, the issue had said. Will the government indemnify us? So. Yeah, it's it's a really good question. So yeah, getting back to it. Uh, Thanks for the clarification, Michael, on the 100 employee. Yeah, that that's a separate, and I haven't filed that as closely because I, you know, I, I'm focused my practice on government contracts. But as I understand it, yes, there is a, a separate order that would work, I think, through OSHA that would say if you're a private business with 100 or more employees, you may have a vaccine mandate put on you too. And so as a, con- a larger contractor, uh, you may have it coming at you from different <laughs> two different directions, both the contract clause and this this uh, OSHA uh, potential mandate too. But that's not one that I've followed enough to be able to talk, you know, at any great length of, about that piece of it. Um, yeah, it, it's you know, it's a the guidance and the executive order, as I read it, did not say anything about indemnity. Uh, that doesn't mean that you wouldn't necessarily get one. Uh, but when I said I don't have any secret information that would go beyond these documents, I, I don't know, you know, what what the rule is, if there w- will be any uh, actual guidance on that. I think that there is certainly an argument to be had that you should be able to file a request for equitable adjustment or even a claim for costs that you can document were incurred in the scenarios you mentioned, not not the one where you bid on the solicitation with the clause in it. But where you have an option or you know some sort of extension to the contract, you didn't price it out, and now you've got to incur these costs. Maybe you even need to hire new employees and do employee searches to replace you know people. I mean, it could get expensive. You pay relocation yeah. fees for people. I mean, I can see this coming up, and so. So, yeah, I think there would be an argument to be had. You know, it depends a lot on what type of contract. If it's cost reimbursement, yeah, you're going to get paid for it. It's a, I think it's a reimbursable cost, probably an allowable cost under the contract. If it's fixed price, ordinarily, the rule is, of course, that the contractor bears the burden of increased costs under fixed price contract. But there are exceptions where the government causes the increased cost. This isn't... Right. This isn't a storm that, you know, act of God or nature, whatever you want to call it, that these, the government says, well, you know, we didn't do that. You didn't do it either. We'll give you a, an extension of time, but we're not going to give you a money because we didn't cause the hurricane. But here in the case, and I believe I've seen this in cases where government shut down and people got extra payment because, you know, the government did that. They're the ones that decide not to fund themselves and got shut, shut down. Tariffs, you know, the government imposes a tariff. Maybe you can get reimbursed for that. So I think there would be potentially a viable, I haven't researched it to see if there's any prior precedent that's similar, uh, but a, an argument to be made that, hey, government, you made me incur this cost. This isn't a, a third party or an act of God. This is, this is a cost that you imposed on me. Here's the documentation of it. You pay for it. And that, mm-hmm. that I think has some some logical appeal. Yeah, we actually have a couple of clients 
Uh, and what we advised was to pick up the phone and call their contracting officer, not send them an email, but to pick up the phone, call their contracting officer and have the discussion about a contract modification and see if they'd be open to that sort of thing. Uh, and so it, that is pending at the moment. I have three or four of those going. I don't have any feedback yet of whether the government is going to do it, but uh, that's something that a couple of our clients have requested. Uh, the government didn't give them a hard no, uh, so they're at least thinking about it. So we'll see what happens, but there's absolutely no guarantee that they'll they'll do a contract mod for them. So yeah, I think that's a great starting point, though. I mean, there's no reason to go in guns blazing and file some claim and pound the table yeah. when you could have a conversation with people. They know. I mean, you know, some of them are going to might say yes, some might say no, some might run up the chain to legal or whoever they yeah. got to talk to there. But they know for well if they have any sense, and most of them do, that you didn't. And then it's an obligation that they're imposing on you. Some of them don't even probably want to impose it on you, but they have no choice. And so I think there's, you know, having that conversation is a fantastic starting point. And, and, and we often do that for clients too, where we'll say, just have the conversation say, I don't want to file anything. I just want to work this out. But especially if you're a small business, you play that card too. Hey, we're a small business. You know, we price this thing, you know, really efficiently for you. We, we sharpened our pencil and now we're, we're, we're in a, a tough spot because of this. Can you help us out? And sometimes that that works out and you don't, you don't yeah. risk the relationship in the same way as if you go in a legal letterhead guns blazing saying, I demand X, Y, and Z that's save that for if you need it. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Lots of stuff here today. And I know we got a lot of questions, so why don't we get to the questions and, you know, typically we, we end the show and then we roll into the, the Q and a, but I, I want to, make the Q&A a part of this show today for, from the folks who ha have joined us, because I think that there's going to be some very interesting things. Again, just a couple of recaps, what I'm taking away. October, start to look for solicitations that are going to be containing the clauses for these requirements. Um, talk to your local employment attorneys to make sure that you are complying also with the, the local regulations as well as the federal. And if there's conflict in the two, they could maybe help you figure that out. Um, and so those were a couple of big points. And so just besides that, we're going to be posting some additional updates. So again, if you guys are not already in Govology Nation, uh, I suggest that you go to govology.com forward slash nation. Uh, that's our private LinkedIn group. You can ask more questions there. We also have uh, some additional legal experts inside of that group, and we'll continue to post updates as they, they go along. And I know there's going to be a lot of questions in this queue here when I open it up today, and I know we're not going to get to all of them. So let's just do a, a speed round. Uh, Stephen and Mike, how are you guys on time for a hard stop today? Do you have a hard stop at, I'm good. at the top of the hour? or? No, I'm good for a little while here. Okay. So let's just go ahead and jump right into the Q&A here, the questions. All right, here we go. Uh, taking it from the top. Let's see. Uh, regarding PTAC offices, our PTAC program is partially paid by DLA. Is there clarification about other non-PTAC staff employees working in our host office needing to be vaccinated? No, I mean, again, when I said I don't have any secret knowledge, unfortunately, I don't. And so um, I think that that would be a great question to ask the task force, um, which is operating under OMB, Office of Management and Budget. But um, yeah, 
have any information about how PTAC staff would be treated. Yeah. And, and Carol, let me jump in on, yeah. on here real quick. I, I think to just kind of tag on to what Stephen just said, this stuff that's out right now is direct but vague. Right? Yeah. <laughs> that, that's the best way to put it. It's direct but vague. And so I think we're, we're waiting on more uh, clarification, not only in October, um, you, Steve, you mentioned OSHA. Department of Labor is also su supposed to put out some rules. So we're waiting on these rules to come out and hopefully it'll help clarify. But I assume there's going to be some specific things like that PTAC question that you just asked, where the rules are going to come out and you're literally going to have to say, I don't understand. Does this apply to me? And you're going to have to run that up a chain. I don't know how high up the chain to get an answer that says yes, no, or maybe. Uh, you know that that's just where we are. Again, it's direct but vague, and that's just going to cause a lot of these special situations to have to run it up the food chain and just see what happens. Yeah, that's that's well said, Michael. And yeah, I mean some of some folks you you know, I mean some of it's very clear, and other cases like that PTAC question. That's one where I suspect you're going to have to do exactly what Michael said, that even when additional clarification comes out, you're going to have to say, OK, but but I'm in this gray area. I don't understand. Help me know what I need to do to comply. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a comment here. Uh, National Park Service requires us to have each employee complete a form stating their vaccination status. Uh, oh, wait. I went too fast. By the way, also inside of the chat, we posted a link to the Gobology blog and, and Stephen has uh, written an article there for us and we got that posted there. So the next question is, uh, as an employer, we have to refrain from asking age, gender, sexual orientation and other personal related questions. How are we protected from a discrimination lawsuit if we have to ask for HIPAA protected information? Yeah, all I can say to that is talk to an employment lawyer. HIPAA is not a, at all my area of expertise, and I, I can't provide yeah. any information on that one. I'm sorry. Um, I think another comment here, NASA and Army sent vaccine reporting forms directly to our employees without notifying me. So it sounds like a lot of the agencies are sending out those reporting requirements mm -hmm. directly to the employees, like bypassing the contractor directly and not even asking them to report. Yeah, and so again, what I, guidance, I, would, I guess, in that should like should I would talk to the customer be saying, giving their yeah. contractors a heads up that like, hey, you might be getting a call from the feds. Yeah, I mean, I, I would first just talk to my customer about. It. There's a lot of moving pieces here, but like I said, if they're doing that, it's not part of this executive order and draft guidance that we've been talking about. It's maybe something else. Maybe if they're f folks working on the employee in a federal facility, it's under the prior executive order mm. uh, for federal facilities. But I, I'd at least talk to my customer and say, uh, "Can you tell me, you know, what is the authority for you to be reaching out directly to my employees uh, for this information?" make sure that you you're comfortable with that answer because again under the under this executive order at least in the current guidance it's the contractor that's responsible for gathering that information not the government directly yeah mm -hmm. steven i want to go back to something you said because you made reference of talking to the the local employment attorney but going back to something that michael asked and about the indemnification and equitable adjustments would that be something that 
a contractor may also engage somebody specialized in federal contract law in tandem with a local uh, attorney employer if they were going to seek equitable adjustment request. Yeah, I mean that that's that's right. I mean I think that you know we we work with and and maybe Michael does too, but we work with uh, companies all the time on equitable adjustments and claims, you know, and and strategies for presenting those in an informal way too. That gives you some. Uh, we take a look at prior authority from you know. There's not been a prior COVID vaccine mandate, but when when are other cases where the government has. Uh, after the fact, impose an obligation that required that increased costs, such as tariffs and things like that. Try to provide some sort of, um, you know, similar enough situation to show the government that they should be paying this. So yeah, I, those are really different legal disciplines. You know, one is, you know, what are what am I required to do under employment law of my state, of my locality, and under federal employment law when it comes to offering accommodations, reasonable accommodations to employees. Uh, based on religion and and medical situations. And the other is, how do I um, best present a claim for additional money to the government because of the costs that I incurred uh, complying with a mandate that was not in the contract that I bid? And so those are those are different legal disciplines. There may be attorneys out there who do both, but I don't know any of them off the top of my head. I'm not one of them. Um, so th- th- those might be situations yeah. where you'd have a couple people working at, at different uh, different elements of this for you. Mm. Uh, next question. Do you think it would apply to SBIR, STTOR awardees with mandatory on-site activity at DOD facilities? We had this question from a client who realizes it's a grant, but was confused by the language on federal facilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Again, you know, the, uh, and that's when I would want to follow up with the task force as well, because the, it does specifically exempt grants. And so my initial answer is yes, but then if you've got federal facilities in there, are you maybe under the other executive order, which we haven't been talking about here, which talks about federal facilities, or would you somehow be considered, you know, under this one to be part of a contract-like instrument? I'm I'm not sure about that. Uh, This uh, guidance doesn't talk about SBIR, STTR specifically. It does talk about grants being exempt. Um, so there's, that's a good starting point, but that's probably a good item for clarification. Okay. Next question. Can our clients require us to send HIPAA protected employee information, which may include employees vaccination status? And do we have to comply? Don't know. <laughs> so again, <laughs> sorry, I wish I, yeah. I wish I could tell yeah. you, you may want to have a, a HIPAA expert on, on the show at some point to answer these questions. Cause it's, these are great questions, Yeah, uh, but they're outside my professional expertise. Yeah. And I'll, I'll just talk this one little brief thing about HIPAA. You know, HIPAA is primarily there to protect you from like your, your doctor, hospital, all those people just willy nilly putting your information out there and all that kind of stuff. That's the price. So like, your employer can't go to your doctor and say, hey, I want all of Carol's records on whatever. Doctor's going to tell them to go fly a kite unless you have signed a document that says, hey, they're allowed to get access to this information. So a lot of times your employer doesn't have information like that. And I think that's where the rub is for a lot of people of isn't this information protected? Like, well, HIPAA is there for a certain reason. And it's there so that those people put safeguards on your data. It's not necessarily there for this sort of situation, but we, we want it to be. 
right? So we want that to be something that can protect our information because regardless of what it is, whether it's vaccination status or, or, or anything, I, I think there's concern from people about my information getting out there and how an employer would use it or anyone else would use it. And so I think from, from just that perspective, um, if the government's trying to force you to do something, you would think there would be some sort of re recourse or, or something you could you could do, but I, I don't think there is. I, there there isn't anything that I've seen. Um, I will say I think these are going to be the things that are contested in court, and and so you could probably speak to that. See, I I think when you look at where people are going to push back, people are going to push back the most on, hey, people are giving my information, and I I I am not. Uh, allowing that, or I did not sign anything that said I was okay with giving any personal medical information. So I think that's one. I think the other one is going to be on, you know, being forced in some way to get a vaccine or lose their job. I think that's going to be one where people are going to push back. I don't know if they're going to be successful pushing back, but I, I see those as a couple of places where as the documentation comes out, people are going to sue. I mean, if you look on social media, there's, there's a mountain of lawsuits already against these executive orders. And so we don't know how that's going to play out. But the thing I would caution people on is all of that's pending. It's all pending stuff. So in the meantime, there's like compliance or else. And even I think somebody asked the question, what's the or else? I don't think we fully know what the or else is. Uh, on the compliance side of things either. So again, it was very direct, but very vague. And I, I think there's just so many questions people have. Um, my biggest thing is just slow down, watch for the documentation to come out. So. Yeah, it's, it's great uh, commentary there, uh, Michael. And I think you hit the nail on the head when you say, you know, regardless of where some of the stuff ends up and I, you know, I'd be, flabbergasted if this task force committee nobody on it thought of HIPAA in drafting this and so it's just completely new to them that doesn't mean that it that it complies and there I'm sure will be lawsuits arguing that and other reasons why this is uh illegal um but you know the idea that this task force never thought of HIPAA when they're writing it they obviously think it's at least you know arguable under uh HIPAA to have this sort of requirement in place. I, I think that's a, a fair reading of this, whether that's right or wrong. And again, I don't know much at all about HIPAA uh, or other laws that might protect this sort of information from the government or from an employer. Um, that that will remain uh, to be seen. Yeah. What are the options for staff not wanting to take the vaccine? Where do they get those forms? So I haven't seen any forms, forms or for is there it. like a waiver request if like they're going to claim an exemption or Stephen, do you know that? No, I mean, the, the only exemptions allowed under this. And again, well, there are a few other ones we should mention. So the, the accommodations are uh, either the religious accommodation or the disability slash medical accommodation. And so uh, I'm not aware of any forms or anything that you can fill out to request one. Uh, the executive order, this is what Michael says, you know, vague but direct, and he's right on that. When it comes to accommodations, the order basically says, well, contractors, you kind of need to figure out what to do, like who's entitled to an accommodation. That's why I say, please talk to somebody who is really well-versed in this sort of stuff and, and can tell you 
when are you as an employer required to get a religious or uh, disability slash medical accommodation? And then maybe that attorney can help you develop a form for your employees if they want to apply for that. There are a couple right. other things to, to keep in mind. Again, remember that at least my reading of it, if you're both telecommuting and not working on a, a contract that's covered by this order, subcontracts, um, then you would not be, uh, in my read at least, bound by the vaccine requirement because you're not meeting either of the, that either or test. You're not working on or in connection with a covered contract and you're not working in a covered contract or facility. Um, if you're working only on contracts that are not covered, of course, simplified acquisitions, uh, product sale contracts, then you would not be covered. If you're working outside the United States and it's outlying territories, you're working overseas, uh, you're not covered by the CDA. So there are a few folks who are exempt, but for the typical contractor or employer just says, well, I don't want to get vaccinated. And there are going to be plenty, many, many of those. That's a real burden for employees, employers, because they're going to have to deal with those folks. They're going to have to figure out right away, I think, whether they are can give them an accommodation, whether that's supported by by the law, and that's to talk to that employment uh, attorney about. If the answer to that, well, then I think you're faced with some tough tough decisions there because if you can you can move them off a covered contract and have them telecommute maybe, or you have to take some other action because we don't know all the or what if you don't comply with the the clause, but. I can tell you one thing, if there's a clause in your contract and you're not in compliance with it, that's called default. And the clause is you're in default of your contract. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely risking being terminated for default and all the things that come with it if you're not in compliance with the clause. Yeah. The one thing I'd say about the forms, Carol, is most of the time you're going to write a letter and submit it to your chain of command, whether it's your supervisor, business owner, whatever it is, and they're going to submit it somewhere um, and then, you know, your business, your business owner may say, well, Hey, yeah, this is valid to me. Um, the thing that I would caution people again, and by the way, I'm not an attorney, but the thing I would caution people against is writing like these mile long letters, getting political, all that kind of stuff, be very short, sweet. I I'm requesting, you know, this accommodation because of fill in the blank and leave it at that. When you start getting into all this stuff, then it starts to look really vague and and things, um, you know, in the medical exemption thing, a lot of time it requires a letter from your doctor. So the doctor will write a letter and submit that on your behalf saying, hey, this person is my patient and they are requesting this because of X, Y, Z um, and for whatever reason. Right. And so. Uh, on the medical side, it's going to be a letter from your doctor, maybe a letter from you as well that goes with it. On the religious side, it's going to most likely just be a letter from you. So, yeah, and I would, I mean, I would second that what Michael said about not getting political. If you're, if you're supporting an accommodation request or decision as you as a, as a contractor yeah. that you are granting an accommodation, document that just the facts, ma'am, sort of, yep. you know, not like, oh, exactly I don't agree I with thinking. this. This is, you know, <laughs> you know, especially keeping in mind, at least at this point in time, the administration that's going to be reviewing those is the one that's a, that made this order. And so right, right. getting, get, you know, whatever your, your belief system may be on this, getting on a soapbox and opposing the, the that on the politics is going to be a poor business decision, I think. So mm -hmm. you stick to the yeah. facts, get get that documentation from a doctor if that's going to be a medical exemption consider maybe getting an employment attorney to, to backstop you if you're giving a religious exception saying hey, we got a legal opinion that says this person is entitled to it that helps support your 
uh, position. And so it's something to consider as well. Okay. And we did have a good question, actually, that came in. We didn't talk about this uh, one, I don't believe. We did talk about timeline of October, November, and December and the fully vaccinated date of December 8th. Here's the question. What happens if you get an award on January 1st? Do all employees have to be fully vaccinated on the start of the period of performance? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the answer, generally speaking, is yes. And so after we haven't talked about it, I'm glad uh, the questioner brought it up. Um, so after December 8th, um, all covered contractor employees are supposed to be vaccinated by the first day of the period of performance of a newly awarded contract. First day of the period of performance, not the day of award of the contract, if it's not the same as the start of performance, but the first day of the POP, the period of performance on that contract, all covered contract employees are supposed to be uh, fully vaccinated. That's the one where I mentioned this in passing earlier, where if you get a new contract after December 8th and the agency needs you to start right away, they have a mission critical need uh, to, to begin right away and you don't have uh, everybody fully vaccinated, the agency can give you an exemption of up to 60 days to have that happen. You have to ask for it and the agency has to to grant it, but you could get a 60 day exemption. But the starting point is after December 8th, any newly awarded contract that includes this clause, day one of performance, you have to meet the vaccination, full vaccination requirement for the covered employees. Yeah, great question. And um, we have Another one here, uh, I think it's a good question. So are IDIQ task orders, uh, solicitations, RFPs subject to the new clauses inclusion on or after October 15th? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't see any exemption for that. Uh, the, uh, the definition in the guidance is very uh, broad. It says It talks about any agreement essentially that creates obligations that are enforceable or other are otherwise recognizable by law um, and goes into his lengthy definition of, you know, any contract under federal uh, procurement statutes and then talks about specifically um, contracts include, but are not limited to, now I've got this pulled up in front of me, job orders or task orders under basic ordering agreements, letter orders, purchase orders, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't see any basis to exempt orders from that. In fact, you may, some of you who are on uh, this may re remember the old kingdom where Supreme Court decision from about five years ago now, and that was a question essentially is an order a contract? And the Supreme Court said, yeah, an order is a contract. And so it's a type of contract. It's a contract under a contract, essentially. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, I, it doesn't specifically say that in the, um, in the guidance. And so it still may be worth asking the question, but I would be shocked based on what I'm reading here if an order was not included because it seems to encompass pretty much any species of agreement between the government and a contractor other than ones that are specifically exempted, such as grants and such as uh, acquisitions under the simplified acquisition threshold. Yeah, and we had a good comment here as well. Somebody posted earlier, uh, I think it's an important distinction that it's not an exception. It's a reasonable accommodation under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act or the ADA. Yeah, I mean, they, they do use the term accommodation under that. I, I'm not sure that it's necessarily limited to the to Title VII and the ADA, as the as the questioner indicated. It doesn't the guidance doesn't limit it to accommodations under those 
uh, specific federal statutes. And there are, as I mentioned, a myriad um, state laws on employment uh, discrimination and, and some local laws as well. And so until I see otherwise, I'm assuming that when they talk about an accommodation required by law, they're meaning any law that applies to that contractor. But I, I definitely agree that the terminology being used is a accommodation is the is the terminology mm -hmm. that's being used in the um, in the guidance. Yeah, I, I'll add one more thing to that. I do think a lot of people when they hear that assume just because when you when you hear those clauses come up, you think about oh, okay, somebody that's blind, somebody that's deaf, somebody that is in a wheelchair, something along those kind of things. And I don't believe it's limited to that on the medical side. I think um, we, we see this a lot right now where people that are, that have high functioning anxiety, uh, you know, is a medical condition. And I can see a case, uh, I know of one going on right now where somebody is deathly afraid to leave their house or, you know, go to the hospital, something like that, where that's a person that has a diagnosed medical condition around this high functioning anxiety. And that person is pursuing an exception because they're like, Hey, I'm deathly afraid of people, hospitals, back you know, all these different things. And it's a crippling thing for that person. So I think it's not going to be limited to what you would normally think as, hey, this, this is a medical condition. And it's it's not a there's not a box that you can check that says there's these three things in the medical condition area. There's a lot of things that I think people are probably going to uh, bring up as as potential issues. So I just I just happen to know of that case off the top of my head. That's great. Great point, Michael. Again, I'm no employment lawyer, but I certainly have seen cases, in fact, way back in law school when I took employment law class. Yeah, mental health, you know, other sorts of, of items that um, may, you know, kind of your the first thing that comes to mind when you think of a disability. Folks who had HIV, for example, might be mm -hmm. diagnosed with a disability, you know, and so it, it's that's why you want to talk to somebody who knows this law, especially when you have an employee come to you with something that may, you may say, well, that doesn't sound to me like they have a disability or medical condition, but don't assume that. Talk to somebody right. who, who knows because it may be broader than, than you think. Right. Yeah. And that's where a simple letter from a doctor that says, hey, this person is under my care and I'm advising them not to for this reason, whatever it may be. Um, yeah. Well, I tell you what, uh, so we're about 415 right now, and and I know that we could go on forever and <laughs> answering questions, and I appreciate the extra time that you guys have taken, Stephen and Michael. I just want to close with a, a comment um, that was kind of made, and and thank you all, too, for those of you guys who've uh, posted questions and, and answered questions inside of the chat, and um, Whitney, if you want to join us in Govology Nation, uh, you, you have a lot of good information, it seems. Uh, she, she posted one more post uh, about, uh, and I think answering another person's uh, a question inside of the, the chat there, uh, saying that generally you first have to be a covered entity to fall under HIPAA. Generally, HIPAA is applicable to healthcare providers, healthcare clearinghouse slash payers and health plans. Unfortunately, HIPAA doesn't apply to all medical info in all cases. You may be able, you may be covered under the Privacy Act of 1974, though, and that's where the question comes in for the government, and that's what our attorney told us. So I think this kind of goes back to, to you know, work with your attorneys uh, if you need to, if you have employees. I mean, this, I think this is going to be important, and this has kind of been the theme throughout this this thing that we've 
discussed today uh, is that know the timelines, know what's being put into your contracts and solicitations, communicate with your contracting officers, ask them questions. Uh, if you're going to go to them for a reasonable accommodation, just state the facts. Don't, you know, uh, get too political with it. And um, I think that that's all we can really do at this time. Yeah. And um, so I'll, Michael and Stephen, I'll give you guys uh, the last words, but also one more thing. I know I said this a couple of times, but please do join us in our LinkedIn group, Govology Nation. I think that this is, I love the, the, the feedback and the questions that we had here. I'd love to keep it going inside of the Govology Nation group. That's our private LinkedIn group. And again, if you want to get there, govology.com forward slash nation is the hyperlink to that group. And that's also in the chat there. So Michael, I'll give you a, a one last uh, word and then Stephen, and then we'll close out for the day. Thanks. Well, uh, thanks for that. Cause I, I had one final thing and it's to say, this is a community effort dealing with this. I think the, the more people that can contribute to the discussion, uh, the more clarity we can get. I've seen things that Stephen hasn't and vice versa. Uh, and there's people that have been on here, you know, contributing today that have seen things that we haven't. So this really is a community effort as is a lot of stuff in the GovCon community. So the more we can contribute in Govology Nation or other different groups or on you know sessions like this, I think the more we're gonna be able to help each other and share you know these little one-off cases where we're all gonna learn something from it. So it's a community effort, please keep it up. Please keep sharing with everybody uh, and we'll, we'll all get through this. Yes. Thank you, Michael. And Stephen, do you have any final thoughts for us today yeah. before you head out? <laughs> yeah, I appreciate uh, you and Michael having me on today. It's been a great discussion as always with you gentlemen. Certainly uh, appreciate it. Yeah, I think as a, as a small contractor, just know that this is real. It's here, it's here very soon. And really, it's kind of here now in terms of the planning for this, that because you need, in many cases, that vaccination, fully vaccination by December 8th, there's really to waste and having those conversations about accommodations, getting your strategy together for how you're going to address uh, employees who may be hesitant to or outright refuse uh, to get vaccinated and, and so on and so forth. So uh, don't don't put this in the, uh, you know, I'll, I'll deal with this later pile. It's really, even though it's still evolving, it's, you need to be, I think, starting that planning for it uh, now if there's any chance that you're going to be affected by that December 8th deadline, which of course it will will be the case for a lot of folks. All right. And that does it, folks. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you to all of you again that were in the chat asking great questions. Thank you to those who were contributing. And um, we'll see you on the next episode. Take care, everyone.